Why are you alive? It's a question I sometimes ask in the counseling room. It catches people off guard. And when's the last time someone asks you, why are you alive? But it's a question designed to draw out what's in a person's heart. What are you living for? What's your driving ambition? A lot of people are, are aimless. Some have a purpose, but they're pointed in the wrong direction. But I'll tell you what, if you don't know how to answer that question, I bet you we can figure out pretty quickly by taking a look at your bank account. Let's see your checkbook. Just print out your credit card statement for the past 10 years. Show me where all your money has gone, and I'll show you your heart. Because the general principle holds true that your treasure follows your heart. What you treasure most in your heart, that is what you live for, your money tends to go after that thing. As Christians, we know the right answer to the question, why are we alive? It's it's the first question of the Westminster Catechism. What's the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We, We say that we live for God's glory, but that talk is cheap. That's easy to say, but... Do you you think you actually live for God's glory? Is the driving purpose and ambition of your life to magnify and make known Christ? Could anyone tell by looking at your life or your checkbook that you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ? These questions can make us uncomfortable, but we need to ask them. It's only right to examine ourselves often, to test ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says... Because the reality is false believers are prevalent. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that not a few, but many will be turned away from the kingdom. They confessed him as Lord, but they denied him with their lives. He never knew them. And they're, they're barred from entrance. You don't want to fail that last and greatest test. We truly are saved by grace through faith alone, not by our works However, how you live shouts the loudest about the veracity or truthfulness of your faith. Have you truly been born again or not? And included in that evaluation is how you give. How you earn money, save money, and spend money says a whole lot about you. And if the Lord were to audit your finances, would he find any evidence that you really are living for the glory of God or or not? Again, I know such discussions can make us wealthy Americans uncomfortable, but this is not coming from me. It's not my warning. This is not my test. This comes from the Lord Jesus himself directly. Just as Jesus is the one who personally confronts the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So Jesus is the one who uses our finances as maybe the the clearest litmus test of the state of our heart. Does your heart actually belong to God or does it belong to self? As is often said, follow the money, right? Follow the money. You'll find a person's heart. May we heed this warning that, that our hearts might be found pure and full of true faith. It's a warning that comes, like I said, from Christ directly in our passage for this morning. It's in Matthew chapter six, a little earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. So turn there, open the Bible to Matthew six. Verses 19 through 21, we're in the body of the Sermon on the Mount this morning, which was launched by this verse way back in chapter 5, verse 20, where Christ says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This sermon preached by the Lord is not 
It's not addressed to the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He'll have a whole lot to say to those people later on, mostly in the form of rebuke. This sermon is addressed to his disciples. He's showing them that the true righteousness that characterizes those who will inherit his kingdom. It's just that that way of true righteousness just so happens to be pretty much the opposite of the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, just to think that Israel's religious leaders, their top leaders were, were unbelieving, unconverted, and not entering the kingdom. That's not what the average Jew believed held under their sway, but, but Jesus says that's true. And he came to unmask and expose their hypocrisy so that you would not be like them. Don't distort God's law like they did. That was the rest of chapter 5. Don't distort godly living like they did. That's the first half of chapter 6. They took what should be these, these genuine expressions of faith in righteousness, giving, praying, fasting. They turned them into a religious show designed to win praise for themselves. They did not have a heart for God. Now we're into a new section here, the middle of chapter 6 through the end of chapter 6, where Jesus moves from sacred living to secular living. We can't escape the world as disciples of Christ. We're not of this world, the end, our life's purpose, why we're alive. And still in the backdrop here are the scribes and Pharisees. Luke 16, 14 affirms that they were lovers of money. In that chapter, Jesus When he taught on money, it says they scoffed at him for what he was saying. He then just so happened to give a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And let's just say it doesn't end well for the rich man. The religious leaders of Israel, they were like the charlatans of our own day, using ministry for the purpose of financial gain, filling their own pockets. And worse yet, they proclaimed that their wealth was a sign of God's blessing. How else do you explain how they're so rich and powerful? Surely God is favoring them, right? But Jesus tears down that notion completely. One's present status in this world is no indicator of one's future status in the kingdom. How many of the world's richest people alive today will not even enter the kingdom? Yet on the flip side, how many maids, how many janitors, how many field workers will be there? Anyone with genuine faith in Christ will be greater in the kingdom than than the richest man on earth today. A great reversal is coming, Jesus teaches. You may think your riches are a sign of God's blessing, but sometimes Jesus might just say that they could be a sign of God's curse. They could be an anchor around your neck threatening to pull you down to hell. Did not Jesus say it would be very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Very hard. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What Jesus has to say about money is a much needed wake-up call, especially to such a, a greedy, materialistic culture as our own. But really, every society needs to hear this message because greed runs deep in the heart of man. And that probably explains why Jesus, he taught on money about five times more than any other social issue from marriage to work to politics. That's because he knew that the love of money is the root to all sorts of evil. And behind every sin is a type of greed. So open your eyes to your wealth. How you use it is a mirror into your soul. 
revealing the condition of your heart. And that's what this next passage is all about. Verse 19 through 24, Jesus wants his disciples to examine self. I mean, you examine yourself. Who is your true Lord, God or wealth? Whom do you serve? Whom, what do you live for? Self or Christ? We need to hear from the Lord now that we too might be shown the way of true kingdom righteousness when it comes to wealth. So let's read the passage, Matthew six nineteen through 24. <clears throat> Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is a powerful passage, deserving and demanding our attention. And our aim is to uncover and take to heart what Jesus sets before us. And speaking of, Jesus lays out a set of three choices that reveal the God you serve. It's a set of three choices that reveal the God you serve. You have a choice between two types of treasures, two types of eyes, two types of masters. And how you choose here is really just going to say everything about who you are, where your heart is at, which God you serve. Now today we're going to give all our attention to this first set of choices in verses 19 through 21. We'll put it as a question. You know, where do you store your treasure? A choice between two storehouses. Where do you store your treasure? Again, verse 19. And Christ says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. So first he sets up a choice between two storehouses. Where will you store up your treasure? It's an either or heaven, earth. Greek word for treasure is thesaros, from which we get the English word uh, uh, thesaurus, which refers to a treasury of words. But this speaks of uh, treasure in any of its forms, money, wealth, riches. Christ, he's not telling us not to store up treasure. It's, it's a great thing to store up treasure, just not on earth. That, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. You don't want to be storing up all your treasure on earth. I'd be foolish. Why? Well, as he says, because all treasure stored up on earth is perishable. That's where moth and rust destroy. It's not, it's not a good long-term investment. In the ancient world, wealth was not really stored in, in paper currency. They had some coinage, but most wealth was stored and transferred in goods. So take clothing, for instance. Before modern textiles, all clothing back then was handmade and carried a lot of value. 
Wool dyed purple was very expensive. Silk in the Roman Empire was literally worth its weight in gold. This explains why in 2 Kings 7-8, the spoils of war was gold, silver, and clothes. This also explains why at the cross, the, uh, the soldiers, they did not want to divide up Christ's inner garment. It was a one tunic woven together. It was too nice to just cut up. So they cast lots to decide who would get the whole thing. There's a lot of value in clothing. There's just one problem with storing a lot of wealth in clothes. Moths, right? This, this tiny little insignificant insect can completely devalue, if not utterly destroy all the wealth you have in clothing. And back then, yeah, a good chunk of your net worth was in your clothing, your wardrobe. I mean, try as you might to store your clothes securely, but moths, especially back then, they'll, they'll find their way in and they'll just have an all-you-can-eat buffet with your wealth. Ancient wealth was also stored in commodities like grain. But these can just be literally eaten away. And that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 19 with this word for rust. Now, I do not presume at all to know Greek better than the NASB translators, but I really don't think rust is the best translation here. The word translated rust comes from the Greek word brosis, and it means to eat. Every time it's used in the New Testament, it means it refers to that which is eaten or the act of eating. Never once does it speak of rust. If Jesus really wanted to talk about treasure rusting, he could have used the other word for rust, like his half-brother James does when he rebukes the rich in James 5.3. He says, your gold and your silver have rusted. That's a different word. But I believe the NIV actually has it best here in Matthew 6.19 when they say, where they translate, where moth and vermin destroy. Because it makes more sense. In ancient agrarian societies, wealth was most stored in the form of commodities like grain. This is reflected in Luke 12, where the rich man wanted to build bigger storehouses for all of his wealth, meaning grain. But here, there's just one problem with storing your wealth in grain, and that would be rats. The rats have to be one of God's most impressive creatures. <laughs> I mean, even today, you cannot keep them out of your house. They're going to find a way into your barn, into your storehouse. They're going to make quick work of whatever you have there. What are you going to do about it? From locusts before harvest to vermin after harvest, all wealth stored in commodities is going to suffer some loss. And yeah, that does include rust with actual you know, precious metals. But the point is the same. You, you, you stand to lose it all just by these forces. Indeed, the word for destroy here in verse 19, it means to remove out of sight. It pictures a total loss. It's like you open your silo door and it, it's all gone. It's all been eaten. Or you open your wardrobe and there, there's nothing there. That The moths have got it all. Jesus, he's not being exhaustive here. There are plenty more threats to the, the treasure we store on earth than moth and vermin. We have also have to deal with you know, hurricanes, fires, earthquakes, termites, to name a few. Today, we store most of our wealth in the form of cars and houses, but even those are not safe. We think we're more advanced. Man has been in a never-ending arms race with nature to try and find new and improved ways to store wealth in a way that won't spoil. So now we've got paper money that's easily printed. We have perfectly minted coins doing pretty good. Beyond that now, we've gone digital. 
We have online banking, electric debit cards, now cryptocurrency. And how can digital money decay? It seems like we did it. We finally found a safe place to store our treasure, right? Well, your money today might be safe from moths and rats, but how about the 21st century equivalents like inflation or stock market crashes or bank failures? How much of your money just vanished this past month in the stock market crash? And even if you manage to deal with all these, you still have the greatest threat to your stored wealth of all, which would be other people. There's always going to be theft, Jesus says, verse 19, and where thieves break in and steal. And the term for break in literally means to dig through. And it pictures the ancient thief digging through the mud walls of someone's house to steal their goods. Or perhaps digging in a field because back then a lot of wealth was buried versus stored in a bank. I mean, in a sinful world, how can you stop theft? And then today, how can you stop 21st century digital theft? What can you do about stolen passwords and clever hackers and pension funds that just evaporate because of some scandal? As even Russian oligarchs are learning, everything you have can be frozen or deleted by the powerful with just a few keystrokes. So what are you going to do? Where can you go to find safety and security for all your treasure? The answer is there's nowhere on earth, that is. There's no safe place to store your treasure. There's no good storehouse. All treasure is perishable. And even if you manage to make it to old age with a few coins left in the bank, that's nice, but you're about to give them all away. Because when you die, someone else is just going to take or inherit all your stuff, all your treasure. You realize you can't take any of it with you to the next life. You're going to lose it all. First Timothy 6, 7 says we've brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And sadly, many will be there standing before God on the threshold of the next life, and their spiritual bank account reads zero. They're bankrupt because they never invested in that account, in that storehouse. They've got nothing there. They never stored any treasure in heaven. And some of the world's richest people today will go from being first in this world to last in the kingdom, if they even enter at all, if they know Christ by faith. I mean, such is the one who stores up all their treasure on earth. It's far better to heed Christ's words in verse 20. What does he say? He tells us what to do. He says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. The contrast now is pretty obvious. It needs little explanation. All investments in heaven are safe. Moths can't get there. Vermin, rust, whatever. Thieves can't reach it. In salvation, God makes us, 1 Peter 1.4 says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you, Peter says. Our position and our reward in heaven, they're granted by God. They're protected by God. His storehouse is an impregnable uh, Fort Knox. Neither sin nor Satan nor death can tarnish or affect our treasure there. Every dime you store there, you're going to see back again with, with eternal interest. How do you do it then? How do you store 
treasure in heaven? What, what does it look like to make an investment in heaven's storehouses? The answer is the same as it's been throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's by your righteous deeds. We've clarified this before, but we'll do it again. Salvation is by faith alone. That, that's not in question here. We owe our salvation to God's grace. We owe our sanctification to God's grace. For apart from him, we can do nothing. We know that. We believe that. But at the same time, there are about 25 places in the New Testament that connect this notion of heavenly rewards to our deeds, how we live out our faith. Remember, we're saved by grace through faith, apart from works, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. But the next verse, Ephesians 2, 10 says, but we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. God wants to see our faith bear fruit and come to life. And when it does, he is pleased. And it's his prerogative. He promises to bless us and reward us. These rewards do not magnify us. They still magnify God's grace. As Augustine said, this is God crowning his own gifts. But they also have a place in communicating that, that we're not robots. And what we do in this life after faith matters. And that's the whole point. We are saved and secured by grace. But that should not lead us to live passive lives of, as if now we're just waiting for glory to come. But we are waiting, but in the meantime, we are to live actively, serve the Lord, bear fruit of righteousness. So then, what does the fruit of faith look like? We can answer that question just with the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount, because several times Jesus has promised heavenly reward for righteousness in this sermon. Back to chapter 5, that the first one was at the end of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5.11. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Then he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. The first way to make a deposit in heaven is to to be willing to suffer shame for the name of Christ. To suffer persecution for his sake. That comes with heavenly reward. Another way to uh, see uh, reward in heaven is to love your enemy. Matthew 5 verse 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Down in verse 46, he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And the obvious implication that is if you do love your enemies, you do have a reward. And then we just finished studying chapter six, where three times Jesus promises heavenly rewards for righteous deeds done from pure motives. When it comes to these acts of devotion, giving, praying, fasting, if you do these deeds with a right heart before God, you're not trying to be seen and praised by man, but you're giving your heart to God. Three times, Jesus says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This list is not exhaustive, But any deed of genuine righteousness makes a deposit into your heavenly storehouse. And likely here in chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus probably most has in mind how you spend your money. What you do with your money. How do you invest your money today? Stocks, bonds, cash, gold, 
CDs, IRAs, real estate? Like what, what investment vehicle do you choose to store and multiply your wealth? And now what if you, you took that money and instead you, I don't know, gave it away? Or what if you were just, you were generous with it, you helped others who were in need? If you did that, you would be making a, a sizable deposit in your heavenly storehouse. Is this not what the Apostle Paul literally says to the rich? This is in the First Timothy 6, 18 and 19. Well, after what we read this morning. First Timothy 6, 18, he's talking to the rich. He says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And get this, the term Paul uses there for storing up treasure for themselves. That's just an intensified form of the same word Jesus uh, uses when he says, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And so if you really want to make a big splash in your heavenly account, try generosity. And just giving generously. Now we have to say at the beginning of chapter 6 here in Matthew, we learned a lot about the deed of giving. That can be a genuinely righteous deed, but that deed can also quickly spoil. Don't think just because you cut that check for 100000 to that church or charity that God is automatically pleased and will grant you reward in heaven. That fruit, the fruit of giving, spoils quickly when it's done for the wrong reasons, chiefly pride, spiritual pride. This is like the philanthropist who gives to charity but demands they name a building after him. Or the one who gives to a hospital, but only if they'll put his name in a big plaque up at the entrance. Or the one who gives only if there's a tax write-off or only if his peers know about it. He wants to be perceived as generous. These are some of the prideful games our sinful flesh plays, but they rob us of our heavenly reward. That's why Jesus said, no, how about try giving in secret where nobody ever knows about it? There's no earthly benefit or reward. No one will even know. But you give with no other motive in mind but to glorify God and help the needy. And that, Christ teaches, finds eternal reward. Now, I want to talk more about generosity, but I think we need a little further clarification on verse 19. I bet some of you are still wondering with that verse, you know, what, what exactly is Jesus forbidding here? How far do we take this? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Okay, is Jesus saying, therefore, it's wrong to have personal property? Should we sell everything we have? Is he saying it's wrong to save for the future? Should we empty all of our accounts? Is he saying it's wrong to be wealthy? That as soon as we come into wealth, we should just give it away. Now, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has made several stunning, staggering statements. But we found time and time again how people go wrong taking them out of context as absolutes. His words come in a context. Mostly, it's a rebuttal to the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. We've seen that many times. But to ignore the context of Christ's words and the context of the scriptures, the New Testament, will often lead you into error. That's how you become a Quaker. Literally, Quakers are a, a Christian sect with many unique beliefs and practices, most of them derived from misunderstandings of the Sermon on the Mount. 
So, for example, Quakers refuse to swear any type of oath or vow. Many of them won't even sign their name on a piece of paper. Just because in Matthew 5.34, Jesus said, make no oath at all. Quakers refuse military service, and they're opposed to capital punishment. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5.39, do not resist an evil person. Now, we we already studied those passages. We unpacked what Jesus means and doesn't mean in those places. Suffice it to say, Christ's words were relative to how the scribes were twisting God's word. He was not making these absolute statements, simply proven by the fact that did not Jesus himself swear when put under oath by the high priest at his own trial, for example? Now, it has proven to be a little bit harder for Quakers, for example, to take this verse, verse 19, as an absolute. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Because while they may not invest in stocks, they still have actually pretty big barns. They store a lot of grain. And they still engage in commerce and make a profit. Have you ever heard of Barclays Bank? It was founded by Quakers. Have you ever heard of Cadbury Confectionery Company? It was started by a Quaker. But they need not worry because Jesus, once again, he's not making an absolute statement in verse 19 that the testimony of Jesus And scripture make this clear, but I think we need to clarify what he means and doesn't mean in verse 19. Now first, Jesus, nor scripture bans personal possessions or private property. The whole commandment in the Ten Commandments to not steal is founded on the concept of legitimate private property and goods. That's why stealing is a thing, is an actual sin. Also, a New Testament example, you recall Ananias and Sapphira. They had a piece of property. They sold it. And they said they were going to give all the proceeds to the church. Of course, they were lying and holding back some for themselves. They just wanted to appear generous. But the thing is, they were never required to give any of the proceeds to the church. They could have done whatever they wanted with that property. Peter affirms this in Acts 5-4 when he says to them, While it remained unsold, Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? He fully affirmed the right to this property and the proceeds. It was theirs to do whatever they wanted with, except lie about giving it to the church. That's something you you can't and should not do. But God is not against his people possessing property or goods. Again, there is no biblical correlation between wealth and godliness. There's no link there. Meaning, just because you're rich, that does not mean God has blessed you. That being said, when God chooses to bless his people materially, it's meant to be seen as a good gift from God's hand to be uh, enjoyed and used for his purposes. This is 1 Timothy 4.4, where Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. So Jesus, likewise, he's not against commerce. We'll find later in Matthew, in several of his parables, he endorses business and even banking. Also, again, back to 1 Timothy 6, we read earlier part of Paul's instructions to the rich. But you notice what Paul never commands the rich. There's never a command for the rich to become poor. He never commands them that if they want to be godly disciples, they have to get rid of all their riches. What rather is the instruction to the rich? Verse 17, we didn't read, 1 Timothy 6, 17. That's where he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world 
not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So the instruction, the consistent instruction for the rich in the scriptures is not necessarily that they need to divest themselves of all their wealth, but they must necessarily divest themselves of all love for wealth. That they cannot make wealth their hope or their God. Scripture does not even forbid saving for the future. There is a difference between being prudent and saving for a rainy day and then making your wealth your soul's security. The scripture promotes the former, not the latter. Proverbs 6 extols the ant, it says, who prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. And then it rebukes the foolish sluggard who does not store up food for the winter. Likewise, Joseph in the Old Testament, he was not... uh, He was not uh, condemned, but commended for his plan to store grain in the seven years of plenty to prepare for the seven years of famine. And also one more, listen to an interesting verse. Paul in 2 Corinthians, he's making this point that he doesn't want or need anything from the Corinthian church. He's like their spiritual father. They're like his spiritual kids. Then he says this, really interesting verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 14. He says, Children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children, meaning young children. But the point is, it's part of the job of parents to save up, literally the same word, store up uh, their goods and treasures to take care of their children, their little ones. And yeah, the verb Paul uses for save up, it's the same verb Jesus uses for store up your treasure. Is this a contradiction? I thought we're not to store up any treasure here on earth. But no, all things in context. I trust now, you you get the point. Jesus, he's not forbidding us from engaging in business, from making a profit. He's not even forbidding us from saving for the future. So then we still ask, what is his main point in verse 19? Where he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Well, you'll notice one key word we haven't touched on. Yourselves. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And this stands out. This is not a ban on possessions or savings accounts. But it most certainly is a ban on greed. It's a ban on covetousness. It's a ban on selfishness. It's a ban on miserly hoarding to the neglect of the needy. Jesus has in mind here the rich person who gains and saves and stores all his wealth and spends it all on his own pleasures. Look, to work hard, to provide for your family, to make wise investments for the future, to enjoy the fruit of your labor and have enough to take care of the needy, that is all good and right in the sight of the Lord. But to be dishonest and greedy and covetous, to hoard wealth to no one's benefit but your own, and to see wealth as the means to satisfying all of your lusts and pleasures, that has no place in the life of a disciple. I want you to quickly see two passages that perfectly illustrate and reiterate the point Jesus is making. So quickly turn to Luke 12. Just flip over to Luke chapter 12. And then after that, we'll go to James 5. From Jesus, from his half-brother James, 
You get two passages that perfectly explain and illustrate the point Jesus is making in this verse in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 12, 15 through 21 says, uh, verse 15, Jesus says, then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For even when one has an abundance does, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And to illustrate this point against greed and materialism, he says this, verse 16, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do? Since I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, before we comment, I want us also to read James 5. So just flip over or listen Uh, James 5, verses 1 through 6. James, if you don't know, uh, we've mentioned it before, but so much of his writing and his epistle epistle is is heavily influenced and draws inspiration from the Sermon on the Mount. You can track and trace all the ways the Sermon on the Mount echoes in James's epistle and his writing. No exception here. You'll see it loud and clear where he takes his turn denouncing uh, the rich who've set their hope on money. James 5, 1 through 6. Let's read this. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. A little more direct, I guess. He says, verse 2, Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, you think of these two passages. It's a tale of two rich men, two people similar. They're both, they're both rich, and they've both stored up quite a lot of treasure on earth. But they're both being condemned. Why are they both being condemned? It is not simply because they stored up treasure on earth. It's not wrong to build barns to store crops. That's not biblical folly. That's biblical wisdom. That's prudence. Their problem runs deeper. Fundamentally, their problem was that they lived this life as if it was the only life. In both cases, they lived as if there was no coming day of judgment. That this is it. This life is as good as it gets. And if that's the case, I mean, it's great for them because they're filthy rich. And so what are they to do with all this money? This life is all there is. Well, you might as well spend it. 
Because everyone knows you don't take it with you when you die, wherever you go. So it's, it's time to live their best life now. The purpose of their wealth, eat, drink, be merry. Just kind of live it up. I mean, why not? Every lust and pleasure you have, you might as well use your money to get it. Why not? Yeah, they might hurt or take advantage of a few people on the way, but, but oh well. Their hearts are greedy and selfish. And when it comes to money, when they, when they come into money, this, this, that selfishness, that hedonism just finds all of its expression because they're living for self and they're living for this life. They're living for this life. But I trust now you see the problem. There's a very big problem for these rich men because this life is not actually the only life. As Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment. Everyone will stand before God in a form of judgment. But these men being possessed by their possessions, they, they convince themselves that, that their soul was secure because it says they had many goods laid up for years to come. They're good, right? They're rich. But they didn't realize that their soul was going to be demanded of them. They didn't realize that they're storing up all these wealth in in the last days. But in an instant, they'll die. All their wealth will evaporate. Their soul will stand before their creator. And what then? What then? That day will come. Their souls had never been made right with God. So what are they going to do when he demands from them riches? It takes riches to enter the kingdom. We're not talking money. We're talking perfect righteousness. You need to present the riches of your righteousness to enter the kingdom, which none have. They stand there penniless and bankrupt. They were never made rich before God through Christ. So they will be rejected. And as James says, that they will weep and howl for their miseries, which are about to come upon them. In life, they were just too rich and too proud to beg for the gift of salvation that comes in Christ alone. And by the way, that's why Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. It's not that they can't be saved. Everyone can be saved by grace through faith. It's just that to be saved by faith, it requires a beggar's spirit. No one gets in the kingdom on their own. None of us have the riches of righteousness to enter. All of us are bankrupt and unrighteous before God. We're all sinners. But it's only Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection that can pay for our sins. Only Jesus can clothe us with his robe of perfect righteousness, all by grace. We access it by faith. By that treasure alone, we are admitted into the eternal kingdom. But there's only one way we receive Christ's forgiveness and righteousness. It's effectively by begging What is the prayer of faith, but a plea to God to to have mercy on me? The sinner, I I, I can't, I'm not righteous. I, I have nothing to offer. I need Jesus. You don't have to sell all your possessions to be saved, but you have to have this type of beggar's spirit, which requires deep humility of soul. And for the rich, it's possible. It just takes, they have a much greater distance to travel from a high tower down to the foot of the cross. They're not used to begging. And so it's hard for them to beg Christ for salvation. They can be saved, but it will require a deep and utter humility. If that were to happen, you would know it. You could instantly tell how. 
Well, they would become overnight generous. When you come to true faith in Christ, God remakes you on the inside. You're given a new heart with new affections, a new love for the Lord, a passion for the Lord that they can't be faked. And that love for Christ is going to show itself in many ways just because you want to. No one has to tell you anymore. You just want to serve the Lord, his kingdom, his purposes. And for the rich, especially their love for Christ is going to show itself in generosity. Was this not the testimony of Zacchaeus? I mean, he was greedy and wicked and filthy rich. But he found salvation in Christ and was instantly transformed. When that happened, Jesus did not tell him, okay, now you got to sell everything to follow me. He didn't tell him that. But Zacchaeus, on his own, what did he say? What did he vow? Luke 19.8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. No one, no one made him do that. That's just what he wanted to do. But with new eyes, he realized like this life is not the only life. This life is not even the greater life. The, the next life is the eternal one. Logically, that, that's the real life. That's the only real life. And when you find the real hidden treasure Christ, he's the pearl of great price. You have him, you have everything. If you have Christ alone, you're eternally rich. And so then what what else really matters? At that point, you ask yourself, so what should I do with all my earthly riches? I have Christ. I'm content. What, What else matters? It's not wrong to save. It's not wrong to spend on yourself and enjoy God's good gifts. But at the same time, what better investment of your time, talents, and treasure can you make then in advancing God's kingdom purposes and helping others? Generosity like this, it doesn't save you, but this reflects the heart of the saved. And that is exactly what Jesus is teaching us in our passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Go back to Matthew 6, where he affirms this is not a money issue. It's not about money. This is a heart issue. And finances, they're merely a window into your soul. There's many windows. This is a big window. This is probably maybe the biggest window into your soul, your heart. Where you choose to store your treasure shows the true location of your heart. And there's not a lot of ways to fake that. But he affirms in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's not saying that if we put our treasure in the right place, our heart will be in the right place. He's not saying our heart follows our treasure. It's the other way around. Our our treasure follows our heart. Wherever you find your treasure, you're going to find your heart there. It's your heart that took you there. Where you choose to store your treasure reveals the location of your heart. So now you have to ask, where's your heart? Where is your treasure? With the Lord? With self? God or wealth? We'll learn next time. It can't be both. You can't have two masters. You can't serve them both. So whom do you serve? And again, this is not about finances. You could be here dirt poor and still too rich to enter the kingdom if you love wealth and serve it more than God. So which is it? If you're here this morning and you're convicted by what the Lord says, I would urge you not not to turn that voice off. If you look at your bank account, maybe you're convinced you're not rich toward God. You may not even know God. Don't harden your heart against that conviction, but rather find that humility. Humble yourself before the Lord. Cry out to him. 
he will hear you. We're all just unworthy beggars at the foot of the cross. There's, there is room for one more. Plead to the crucified yet risen Savior, and he promises to hear you, to forgive you, to make you new, to give you hope and peace, and to make you eternally rich. That's why he came. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And that verse has nothing to do with money. Turn to him in repentance and faith today. He'll give you a new heart. And then be moved to generosity out of your new heart. That is the great takeaway for all here who, who know this Christ. To put off greed. To put on generosity. To yield more and more of your heart to his kingdom purposes. Later in Matthew 6 verse 33. A, a notable verse. He will tell us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He has to tell us that because he knows we often don't. We do not often seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Even as true disciples by faith, we're still prone to wander. We're prone to get distracted by this shiny treasure over here. The sinful flesh remains with it, greed and selfishness. So we too must keep our eyes open and our hearts guarded against greed, fixed on generosity. It's not wrong to save and to spend on yourself, but how can you be moved to invest more in heaven, to seek first his kingdom and righteousness? Just how kingdom-minded are you? I'm going to read again 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. We're not called to escape this world or to ignore it, but we're also not called to live for it and to be seduced by its treasures. Enjoy all the good gifts God has given you and then use them for his glory or his kingdom. That will naturally happen. You will naturally want to do that the more you realize that this present world is not the only world. That the world to, to come is your home. Scripture speaks of Christians as aliens and strangers here below. It's not actually our home anymore. We're exiles. It says we are exiles in this world. We're awaiting our heavenly home. So if you want to live like this, what must you do? Colossians 3, 2 through 4 tells us, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. We have to fix our minds and constantly remind ourselves against the flesh that this life is not the only life or even the greater life. We are following Christ living for the world to come. That takes faith. But is this not why you are alive? This now is our purpose and ambition. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, meaning dead or alive, we have it as our ambition to be pleasing to him. And then it says the next verse, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In this life and the next, we exist. We were created to glorify God. And you need to see to it that purpose is reflected not just in what you say, but how you live and how you give. Store up treasure in heaven. You'll see it again. But in all, may we live our lives, may we spend, may we give like, like Moses. An example of true faith. Listen to this. Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. It says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. It says, for he was looking to the reward. That Moses seemed to know this, this world is not our world. We're, we're looking for a better country, a heavenly home. And seek Christ, live for that reward, and Christ will uh, bring you there. Let's pray to the one who saved us. Our Father in heaven and Christ the Son, we, we pray to you and exalt you this morning as we recall who you are and what you have done for us to, to save us. This world is sin-cursed, and we too are sin-cursed. We have greed and selfishness, covetousness in our hearts. And we, we certainly do not by nature live for you. All have sinned. All have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. We live for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We thank you, though, for sending Christ to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to secure a people and to turn them back to you, to open their eyes to truth and to the true meaning of life, to the true life, which is the life to come. You have created us for eternity, and an eternal kingdom is coming. We just thank you for the grace of the Savior who died and rose to secure us, to purchase us, to awaken us to faith that we might be there. Thank you for the grace gift of salvation. And for any who have not received it, any conviction they bear, we pray it doesn't fizzle out, but turns into faith, that it humbles them to realize whether they're rich or poor, they have nothing before you on their own. They need Christ, what he only can offer, that robe of righteousness. It's there, it's free for those who are not too proud to beg or too rich to beg just in faith for mercy. Thank you for your many grace gifts and how you choose to reward us. That just magnifies your grace even further, grace upon grace. And we, we want to magnify you. How can we not? How can we not live for the God who did all this for us and has so much more in store for us? How can we not offer up our whole lives and all of our treasure for your kingdom and for your righteousness? So convict us and use us now for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.